few weeks ago when we were wrapping up chapter 9, admittedly chapter 9, the story of one of Gideon's sons, Abimelech, and the slaughter of all the other sons, and his seizing of power, and the declaration of the one son that survived, Jothan, of like, hey, he's going to be your downfall, and you'll be his downfall, and just the way all that played out. You go through chapter 9, the story of Abimelech, and again, it is just kind of a bizarre thing where he destroys Shechem, and in the process of destroying Shechem, he builds this fire around the the tower, and a woman drops out a millstone, a kitchen appliance, that crushes his skull. It's like how the story ends. It's like, okay, great, Lord. We appreciate the uplifting passage of Scripture. Um, I do want to say, and this is kind of one of those things that that you lose sight of when you're kind of in the minutiae, and it's often good to just take one step back, do a bit of a micro-examination, while the, while the story of Abimelech is happening and you scratch your head and you're like, Lord, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing in the nation of Israel? Is this really what you're up to? Is this the manifestation of, of your hands? Is this the, the act of grace, the act of Like, what is going on? I can only see this. What else are you doing? And I just want to say that you should note that during the story of Abimelech, which is happening in one part of Israel, There is another story, likely, and again, you kind of got to line up the chronology a bit. There is another story happening at the exact same time that this terrible reign and experience of Abimelech and and his heavy handedness and his eye. Like, again, Abimelech's interesting up into that point in Judges, God has used foreign nations to judge his people. This is like God judging from within. He raises up one of their own to be an oppressor. Like things have gotten dark and bleak and you're looking at the world of Abimelech and you're like, God, where are you? What are you doing? At the same time, if you just move to another region of Israel, again, not recorded for us in Judges, but placed in an entirely different book, you have a famine taking place in Judah. And as a result of this this famine, there's a family that leave, they flee to Moab. There's a, 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 a man and a woman their sons, and they go to the land of Moab, and then they marry Moabite women, the two sons. Like, there's the story that plays out. God ends up judging the sons, leaving these, these, these widows. God judges the father, leaving a woman named Naomi. Unsure what to do. She gives leave to these two Moabites. Hey, you can go back, go back to your father's house. But one of the two is like, no, I believe in the God of Israel and I love you and I'm gonna go with you. I'd rather be a widow, a Gentile widow in the land of God than having a future in the world. And Ruth goes with her mother-in-law and comes back to the land of Bethlehem. And then there's this love story that unfolds. Again, while all the zaniness of Abimelech's happening, in conjuncture, you then have Ruth and Naomi coming back to Bethlehem. Ruth falling in love with a man named Boaz. And at the end of Ruth, you'll see why it's significant because Ruth becomes part of the lineage. It's from her family. I think like two generations. She's the grandmother, if not the great-grandmother, of David. God's chosen king of Israel. And so when you're in the midst of a season of life, let's just call it an Abimelech season, and it's chaos, and you're like, I don't know, up from down, right from left, everything's disoriented, and I can't really see God in any of it. 
It could be at the same time in some other place that God is raising up a king or a deliverer. That God is still, even when you can't see it, God is still working. And I just think wrapping up that crazy chapter, it's just worth noting that God is still doing some other things at the same time that we have this stuff happening that we're reading in the book of Judges. Let's transition to chapter 10. And after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of, and it's literally pronounced Dudu. Not making that up. This was not me making a joke. This is literally, he's the son of Dudu, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir and the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years and he died and was buried. I should add about Dudu that his name in Hebrew actually means loved of God, which I love because let's be honest, I'm very encouraged that there is a lot of Dudu that is loved of God. You and I, my friend, loved of God. So we have this judge, Tola. Now, during some of the transitions, people like to classify, like make two different categories of judges, the same way they do prophets, where you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. They, they like to try to, to classify minor judges and major judges. We, we do it with the prophets purely based upon the length of information that we have of them. For example, Isaiah is a major prophet. Jonah is a minor prophet, not because of their influence. I mean, good grief, Jonah leads the greatest revival in history. And yet Jonah's a minor prophet. Isaiah is a major prophet just because the book of Isaiah is huge and Jonah's small. So we have minor and major, not based on importance, but just the length of information. Same classifications here. This man, Tola, we know basically nothing about other than he descends from Dudu. But note, we're told that following Abimelech, so this is a crazy time to be in ministry, God raises up this man, Tola. We're told where he dwells. Verse 2 says he judges Israel. And then we're told that he judges Israel 23 years. He dies, he's buried in Shemir. That's it. But he judges Israel for 23 years. That is longer than Samson. That actually places him in the higher tiered category as far as the longevity of ministry of the judges. And yet we don't know anything but these two verses. This man, a unique man, used by the Lord. You know, it's one of those things that I think the minor prof, the minor judges, you know, they're, they're, they're written in history the way that they are, as opposed to some of the other judges where we're given lengthy dissertations about their life and ministry, mainly because like they served quietly and there was no drama, right? Like a lot of the story we got of like Gideon, is like Gideon being stupid. Like if Gideon had just been totally faithful to the Lord, we would have probably gotten like half the story or half the narrative. Like we have so much on Samson. Why? Because the guy's a first-rate knucklehead. Like there's so much drama to the story of Samson. 
But why do we not have any any lengthy dissertation about Tola? Well, because there probably wasn't a lot bad to say. I love this. I really do. Like he's included in this and he's a judge. And I think his reward's in heaven and, and we'll, we'll meet him and we'll get more of his story. We'll find out more of what he did. But like he, he just served in, in this, this quietness. Like there was peace, there was no drama. You know, pastors, when they get into the news, 99% of the time, it's a bad thing. <laughs> like the whole pursuit of celebrityism when it comes to Christian ministry it's destructive. It sets the person up for a fall. It, it, it just necessitates drama. I'd rather serve in anonymity and faithfulness and quietness. Now, there is one aspect to this man that I, I do want to bring to the forefront because his name, Tola, it's an interesting word. If it weren't bad enough that you descend from doo-doo, This man, Tola's name means worm. I mean, imagine that conversation. You know, honey, I'm pregnant. I think it's a boy. What do you want to name him? Worm. You you don't want to go with rat? No, we'll, we'll stick with worm. What a bummer. I mean, you get named worm. Now, in Israel, this is a particular worm. The, tol, uh, the toleth, tola, toleth in the Hebrew. The toleth worm was a unique creature. It was prevalent in Israel. And, and, and the biology of it was fascinating. You see, the worm, the toleth, would, would climb up a tree. It would have eggs. It wouldn't hatch them outside of the body, but inside the body. So this worm would hatch eggs inside of the body. And when the larvae hatched, when the, when the eggs, you know, and they would grow, the babies would grow by consuming the body of the mother. So she would hatch these eggs internally. They would hatch, they would eat the mom, she would die. And then her her body would crack open, allowing the babies out. But what would happen is that because of the enzymes and the, 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 just the, the pure biology of it all, when the, when the tolith would crack open, down the tree would run a liquid that was scarlet. It was a a, a crimson red color, which is why the word tolath, in addition to be translated as worm, can also be translated in the scriptures as scarlet. So we find it translated in both ways because this worm was known for producing life through its own death. Picking up where we might be going. Now, why I bring that up, I want to read a section of Psalm 22 to you. And this is a messianic psalm, and this is written from the perspective of Jesus on the cross. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and, and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm, Toleth, and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip 
They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in them. And you know that that was the mocking that took place at the cross. Again, Jesus recorded for us in Psalm 22, this messianic Psalm, identifies himself. He says, I am a worm. Now, where is he in this declaration? He's on the cross. He's hanging on a tree. And what is perfuting from his body? His blood. Though my sins were as scarlet, toleth, they shall be white as snow. See, Jesus died on the cross so that from his death, you and I, his offspring, might have life. So like Jesus says when you gather, this is my body broken for you, and this is the cup, my blood of the new covenant. I am a worm. I am a toleth. Interesting, this judge of Israel, son of decomposing dirt manure that Jesus identifies with. Of all of the judges, Jesus would say, I am a toilet. I am but a worm, giving my life, shedding my blood so that we might have life. I like this man. I can't wait to meet him. Tola. And after him arose Jair, a Gileadite. And he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cammon. Again, one of these minor judges. We don't know much of the man other than he ministers. He judges Israel for 22 years, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of drama. The name Jair means to enlighten. Apparently, he had quite a few sons. He had 30 sons in particular. There's a little bit of a scholarly debate in regards to the inclusion of this detail, what it means, what we should imply. There are some scholars that would just conclude, a matter of fact, that, well, this is evidence of uh, polygamy. You know, that the man has 30 sons in the similar sense that uh, Gideon had 70 because he had many wives. I, I, I would contend, maybe not so, primarily because we're told that of Gideon. We're told, well, he had 70 sons, and then, and then Samuel, who I believe is the compiler, the author of Judges, adds, well, th- that's because he had a lot of wives. He didn't put that on one woman, right? That's the idea. Don't feel bad for her. It wasn't just one. He had many wives, and he also had a concubine. That's where we get all the sons. But, but we don't have that detail here, do we? And again, I think if that was uh, intended, if that was the takeaway, that this man was flawed like some of the others because he had had polygamy, and and as a result, he had these 30 kids. I just think the man had a solid wife. I mean, I don't see any particular reason to to assume otherwise, other than the fact that this man has a brood. He has 30 sons. Now, could it be that he had other wives? I don't know, but the text doesn't tell us. All it says is he has 30 sons, and to each of these sons, he gives a donkey. And in that culture, within that time, giving a donkey... That was, that was providing your kid with some wheels. So Jair is, is probably, he's, he's a judge of Israel. He has some, some measure of wealth. Having sons was, was a mark of, of blessing. 
And within these sons, what does he do? At least our, our takeaway is he includes them in the manifesting of his calling over Israel. He gives them these donkeys. He has these 30 sons and he puts them in charge, kind of an extension ministry of his own where they had these 30 towns. And these 30 towns, by the way, last until the days where Samuel's like, they're still there and they're prosperous and God has blessed them. So Jair, to enlighten, his name means he has these 30 sons, seems to be at least a good family. They're included in ministry. Um, I am so thankful, I'm so thankful um, that I grew up in the home of, of a Jair someone that included his family in ministry and and handled ministry and family appropriately. Uh, My dad started Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain uh, in September of 1980. Um, Three years later, I became a a founding member. Um, (laughs) I spent um, 22 years of my life growing up in that church. And then I spent uh, the first decade or so of ministry serving at that church. It's my home church. Um, I am so thankful, though, that, that my dad, you know, a lot of pastor's kids get a bad rap. Oh, you're a PK. What do they mean? Well, you're, you're wild. You know, you're rebellious. Those pastor's kids, watch out for them. And, and, and truth be told, to be fair, that that, that, that generalization um, has some merit to it. Because pastor's kids do kind of go crazy at certain points. We didn't. I didn't. My brothers, my sister didn't. And, and I would say that, that the primary reason we didn't is that we loved the church. But we loved the church, and, and I think there were two reasons why. One, my dad never cheated on my mom with her. You know, kids will always hate their father's mistress. Why? Because of the pain that's been caused to their mother. And a lot of pastor's kids see their dad cheat on their mom with the church which is a dangerous thing because it's not his bride, it's Jesus's. So you're flirting with another man's woman. I don't think Jesus takes it too kindly. But my dad never, he always kept it in Hey, the church, that's Jesus's bride. I'm, I'm the best man. Like I have a job here, uh, but that's not my wife. Kathy is my wife. And, and he had a priority. My dad never missed a ball game. He never missed a recital. He had four kids, but had created balance. So we never had to hate the church because we didn't have a reason to. And secondly, I think one of the reasons that we, we, all of us have grown up, not only to love the church, but to follow Jesus and to be a part of a church is that my dad included us in the ministry. Some of my earliest memories growing up were waking up early to, to go with my dad to church when it was about this size. And we would on the way stop by Dunkin' Donut. He'd get a coffee. I'd get a donut. On the drive, we'd pick our baseball teams, our rosters. Once we got to the church, I knew dad had a job. But guess what he did for me? I had a job. I'd have a bottle of Windex. I'd clean the front window. And we had one of those Swiffers. It wasn't a vacuum. It was just a Swiffer. And I'd go around. The worship team would be playing. Dad's prepping. We had a job. We had a role. It's one of the main reasons that... I was so um, gravitated towards this church and doing this uh, because the development of my perspective when it came to church was developed by being part of a small church and not a big one. When you're going to a big church, it's easy to just get trapped into some place that I go, consumerism. Uh, When you're part of a small church, we put you to work. Like you can't just come and sit back and do nothing. At some point, we're gonna be like, hey, thanks for being here. 
make some coffee, please. You know, like pick up a baby. Like when you're part of a smaller church, it's a smaller, you can't just be a taker. You feel weird. You don't last very long. You have to, at some juncture, be a contributor as well. I wanted my kids to like grow up in that environment, to grow up in a church that I did. My brother and I have talked about it. There's eight years apart from, from me and Mac. And within that process, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain radically changed in those eight years. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Mac had a much better youth pastor than I did because he had me. That was a joke. Thank you. But the church grew. And, and we've talked about the, the different perspective. That, that we have of the church and just growing up that way. I, I love this man. It, it, you know, it's vague. We don't have a lot. I'm probably extrapolating some ideas off of it. But he included his kids. You know, especially when your kids get older, you know, and like, do we have like the full youth ministry or children's ministry that bigger churches have? No, we don't. We don't have the facility. We don't have the manpower. We're not paying people. Like, it, it, like there are some limitations to like playgrounds and facilities and et cetera. But you know, I think that there's something that we offer that the big churches don't, and that's fam- a family environment. And at some point in the development, the raising of your own kids, you have to kind of like, what matters more, them going to youth group or like being a big sister and, and ministering to the toddlers? There have been several families that, have, that are in our church right now that have been a part that who who kids at various times, that was a, a thing. You know, what do we do? And those families made the decision to stay put. And, and you know what? Their kids, and I'm not going to name them, but their kids love Jesus, understand what church is, and will go out of their way to come here even if they live two hours away going to school. Because they get it. They understand something different. Jair. A no-drama judge God uses he dies, he's buried. Verse six, then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the asterisks, the God of Syria, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. I mean, they are just whoring themselves out. And they forsook the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, and they did not serve him. We find that this refrain here, this, this verse, the children of Israel did evil, again did evil in the sight. Seven times throughout the book of Judges, we find this repeated. We, for context, we have, within so many verses, we've moved 45 years from the conclusion of Abimelech to these verses. For 45 years, they've been uh, ministered to by Tola Jair, but again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Their hearts went wayward. They go right back into idolatry. Specifically, what's setting the stage here is Ammon and you know the oppression brought into the nation by Ammon, and then the Philistines. And the reason that this gets structured is really kind of the rest of the book, at least the next several chapters. We will focus on the oppression of Ammon and then God's deliverer being Japheth. And then we'll look at the oppression of the Philistines and then God's deliverer being Samson. And so we're kind of getting the stage set for another cycle of all of these things. So they forsook the Lord. They go after these idols. They did not serve God. Verse 7 
So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All of the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan and the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. You know, God is a divine gentleman. Norman Geisler coined the phrase, God is not a spiritual rapist. He doesn't force himself upon any human being. In fact, God being such a gentleman is apt to allow people to follow their own hearts and their own whims. God, yes, will woo and he will reveal and he will demonstrate, but he will honor as well. Even if that in honoring is the rejection of himself. And we see that the children of Israel are not just going after typical gods, they're going after everything. And then God, as a result, like, okay, if you're not going to serve me, if you're not going to love me, if you're not going to follow me, if this is what your heart wants, then you know what? Don't just dabble in it. Here you go. Dive in. Which is what we find happening here. God's anger is aroused. He's like, okay, this is what you want. Don't just dip your toe in it. Which is what's being articulated in the fact that they're like, God sells them over. Oh, you want to serve their gods? Here you go. Serve them. Now you're in bondage. There's freedom with me. You're going to experience what life looks like under the authority and mastery of a foreign god. So he uses Ammon and he uses the Philistines and he is punishing the people in so much as he's just allowing them what they were wanting. This is your heart's pursuit. Go for it. Now, how do you blame God for that? You know, people often bring up hell as a great criticism against the idea of there being an all-loving God. Like, how can an all-loving God send people to hell for all of eternity? And I would take umbrage a little bit with the way that that's phrased, that that criticism is presented. Because I don't believe that God really sends anyone to hell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, that God wills for all to come into salvation. So then what is hell really anything more than God honoring the decision that you've already made. C.S. Lewis writes about this. He says that for the people that end up in hell, they have made a decision throughout their lifetime to reject God, to reject his goodness, to reject his love, to reject Jesus. So much so that if they were to die and stand before God and God gives them anything but what they want, eternal separation from him, that that would in turn be a hell in and of itself. For someone to get to heaven and God be like, you know, I know you wanted nothing to do with me. You didn't want to hang out with my son. You didn't want my spirit. You rejected me and my revelation. But you know, now that you're on my turf, <laughs> you got to hang out with me now. That would be hell. You see, I think the ultimate demonstration of God's love is that he allows people to choose eternal separation from him because he loves you so much and he doesn't want that. And he's done everything in his power to resist that, to stop that. You see, when God just allows us to swim in the pool our heart desires, we can't blame him then for the consequence. You see, people look at the judgment of God as somehow being heavy-handed when it's just the natural manifestation of actual love. You want to do this? 
I'm telling you this is a bad idea. You still want to do this? Do you not experience my love? You still want to do this? Okay, I'm not going to fight you. I love you that much. And I'm hoping that maybe there's a season of this experience where you're like, I have made a terrible mistake. And like the, the prodigal son, you're eating the slop. You realize the servants have it better. And you're like, I'm going to go home because it's better to be a servant in my father's house. God hands them over. It's an act of love. So Israel was severely distressed. Verse 10. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, for some context, it's been 18 years. Okay? Like just for a moment. This is not like after two weeks of a little bit of distress. Whoa, this is 18 years of abject stubbornness and rebellion and hardness. 18 years, then the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. Again, we've heard this before, right? We've gotten a good 250, almost 300 years of the same thing. Different generations, same refrain. 18 years, they're greatly distressed, and they start whining about it. We've made a mistake. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians? And from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Ammonites oppressed you after you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. Stop for a moment. This is an interesting thing. Um, (laughs) So the Lord said to the children of Israel, (laughs) uh, how? Uh, Maybe this is just the way my brain works, but up until this point, like when God speaks, And judges were like told the mechanism of it. Like you go back to the earlier chapters and like literally God, Christophany, Jesus walks out of the tabernacle, comes to the people. We're going to have a meeting. God speaks. God speaks to Gideon. Again, another Christophany. There's another section, remember, where God sends a prophet to the people. He's unknown. We don't know his name, but we're told he sends a prophet. This is unique because it just says the... The Lord said to the children of Israel, was this a prophet? Was it a priest? We don't know who it was. We have no idea other than this gets articulated and it's understood as being from the Lord. And he begins by saying, you know, you're crying out about the bondage, the oppression of of these people, these foreign powers over you. You're bummed out about it. News alert, I freed you from them already. (laughs) Like you're severely distressed because you find yourself in a scenario I had nothing to do with. This is your decision. You're bummed out that you're in the oppression of the, I freed you, I don't know if you remember. And he goes through this list, like just making sure no one is, 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 is forgotten. Verse 13, yet, because I delivered, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. 
Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you and your time of distress. I mean, not what you want to hear from God. That's heavy. Again, the children of Israel, after being handed into uh, the bondage of, of, of these powers, after being judged, they, they wake up after 18 years. Oh, woe is me. And so God's like, you know what? I'm kind of done with, with this. You know what? You've gone after these gods. You've laid, uh, you've made your bed with them. You've worshiped them. You've forsaken me. You know what? If you're bummed out about it, why don't you take your complaints to them? Now, now why is God doing this? Is God done? Has God rejected them? Is God, is God like, I'm wiping my hands right now? No, because the, the book of Judges doesn't end. <laughs> so God's going to circle back. But what, what's he doing in this moment? This is a wake-up call. I mean, this is a shot across the bow. They, they, they fall back in the same pattern. God, I'm sorry. And God's like, you know what? I'm done with that. I'm done. And I think God is setting the stage for like, a new thing to happen within the hearts of the people. Like God's kind of saying, you know, at this point, your words mean nothing to me. It's time to see something other than words or whining or crying. That's one of the, the interesting things about sorrow. Because, because what can we interpret from someone in sorrow? From a counseling perspective, from a ministry perspective, from a personal perspective. The Bible describes two different kinds of sorrow. There is godly sorrow, there's worldly sorrow. They look identical. They come with tears, wailing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But what is the difference? How do you distinguish between the two things? Well, we're told in Scripture that it's godly sorrow that produces, manifests repentance change. Changing of the will that leads to a change of behavior. I know you're really sorry. Why? You stop doing it. As opposed to the other one, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And if they continue to do the very thing they're sorry about, you can realize that that is not godly sorrow. That is a worldly sorrow that will lead that person to destruction. Because guess what? They have all the signs of sorrow, but none of the manifestation of repentance or change. You know, one other wrinkle to this where, where it gets complicated. It's really hard to tell whether or not something is, is godly sorrow or worldly sorrow when someone gets caught in the act of sin. And let me apply this in just a simple way. When When I walk by the living room and I see the firstborn turn and punch the secondborn, I don't even need a reason. It could be anything. The switch game. You ate my candy bar. I, it really could be anything. But I see it happen. 
boom, fire in the eyes, right? And boom, the firstborn right in that moment, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Well, of course you are, because you know that there's about to be consequences. I don't know if you're really sorry about what you did, but you are sorry about what's about to happen. We got it. Because you're not going to beat down on your little brother. So again, in the moment, do I know he's really sorry or not? I, I really don't. There's no way for me to tell in that moment whether he's sorry that he was grieved over the action against his little brother or he was grieved that the actions against his little brother were caught by dad who is now going to yield actions against the firstborn. You guys tracking with me? Now, could it still be godly sorrow? Well, time will tell. Time will tell. But you know the easiest way, the easiest way to know the presence of godly sorrow. And and this is not an absolute because people can be habitual liars and they can manipulate the system. But just in a generality, if, if the firstborn punches little brother, little brother's hurt, Firstborn's like, oh my goodness, I acted out of anger. This was wrong. Theodore, I'm so sorry. It's, it's okay. I forgive you. No, I, I got, and he comes out to the back deck and he's like, dad, I've, I've transgressed. My little brother, Theodore. And in an, an act of anger and rage, I just wasn't being Christ-like. And I punched him. He's forgiven me, but I just need you to know that I did this evil in your home. Now, at that point, I'm pretty impressed. I'd be very impressed because that's never happened before. But in the moment, I'd be very impressed. Why? Because it's like, no, there's something happening internally. Like you're not sorry because you've gotten caught because you haven't gotten caught. You're sorry because like there is something inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin and you're like, I can't live with this and I need to confess it. See, that's the importance of confession. I I promise you, if if you got things going on in your life, it's gonna be a tough conversation. I, I know. But if you go to your wife and say, I cannot live a lie anymore. I cannot do this any longer. I am sinning against you, and I've got to come clean. I've gotten away with it forever. I still think I could probably get away with it, but God sees it, and enough's enough. She's still going to be ticked off. But there's a difference than when she happened to log in accidentally to your email account and pulled up correspondence that she then prints out for when you come home. Yeah, tears, I'm sorry, I love you babies, all come out in both scenarios. But one's different than the other, isn't it? Confession of sin frees the soul. Especially when there's a God that says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, the, the, the craziest thing about your sin in the context of God is guess what? He already knows about it. It's like we come to God like, hey, God, 
I did this thing the other day. I, you're probably busy with other stuff you might not know. You put pause on all-knowingness. I snuck it in. Oh, like, we come to God to confess our sin. He's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, yep, thank you. Thank you. I love you. So the children of Israel, they come to the Lord, and God here is going to check, is this real or not? Is this repentance or just I'm sorry? And I'm sorry that I'm suffering, and I just don't want to suffer anymore, because we've been down this road, right? God is kind of being a very wise parent, isn't he? So the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Man, that, that's like, those are three words that we haven't found a lot in Judges. And then notice what comes. And this is like this national thing. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them. And they served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Notice the misery index doesn't change. They come to God, we're suffering, this is terrible. And God's like, you know what? Lie in it. I'm done playing this game with you. You lie in it. And guess what? They still lie in it. They're in it. Their misery continues. They're severely distressed. Now they're still in misery. But what's happened? They're like, you know what? I'm going to make a decision. I have sinned. I'm acknowledging it. And we're going to get rid of these foreign gods. And we're going to serve you. Even if our circumstance doesn't change because we realize we've earned it. Wow. You know, so often we come, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. When my kids come. Dad, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. A lot of the times, you know what they're, what they're pleading? I want to get out of the consequence. I'm sorry because I want to get out of the consequence. I want to get out of the consequence. So I'm going to say some magic words to get out of the consequence. God's like, no, I'm leaving you in the consequence. I'm not changing that at all. Now let's see what you do. And this is a unique moment in the nation of Israel. It doesn't last, but for this generation, it's important. Because here they are. And they're like, okay, our circumstances we've earned, we're being judged, we're being punished, we're miserable, we know why, and you know what? We're not bartering with God. God, you do as you will. From this day forward, I'm going to do what I should have been doing all along. I'm going to get rid of these gods, and I'm going to follow after you. I would love for you to deliver, but if you choose not to, it's not going to change what I'm doing. And that is a picture of repentance. That's profound. And then we get this phrase, in the midst of it all, God's soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. God begins to soften. Verse 17, then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. The children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon. And he shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And that sets the stage for Japheth chapter 11. Now, 
again, this consistent theme we, we started with, I think is applicable here too. And that is the idea that when you're in a season of Abimelech, don't, don't think that God's still not working somewhere else, right? So we had this season where, man, there's some bad things going on. For 18 years, the people are being oppressed. They had this exchange with God. They, they cry their tears. God checks them. And then we see real repentance. God begins to soften his heart. While all of that's going on, God already has a plan in place. God is already working in the life of an outcast who gets, who gets thrown out of his country, who gets alienated from his people, who goes through a bunch of experiences that, that, that are raw. Why? Because God was going to use him. And he knew he was going to use him back when he was dealing with Israel because he's sovereign over it all. God is always at work. And so we will see this incredible deliverer, Japheth. So read ahead, chapter 11 and 12. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.